Hello and welcome to Repatterning. My name is Kata. And I am Tom. This is an interview series about what happens when our surroundings are turned inside out and what that can mean, whether that's by raving or kinship or grief or political transformation. These are all things that we will be talking about in this interview with today's guest, Wanda Games. So, uh, Wanda is a DJ and academic and lecturer and writer and curator and one of the organizers of the Berlin Club Night Lecken. And uh, she'll be talking about all of this and more. Hello there. <laughs> <laughs> so, hi, Wanda. Hi. <laughs> hi. Welcome and thanks for joining us here today. Yeah, nice. Thank you for having me. So we just gave a very short introduction of uh, you. And uh, now we would like to ask you to tell a few words about how you think of yourself or what you would emphasize about yourself and your work. Um, yeah, so I've, um, I've been in Berlin for 13 years. Um, I um, am originally from Eastern Europe, Romania, um, but I've arrived here via Canada. And I'm um, um, a teacher and an academic by trade. I graduated in political science over 10 years ago. And uh, I've slowly migrated out of that line of work and started doing um cultural production and community organizing in the queer feminist world, uh, underworld of Berlin, uh, where I started organizing together with a group of friends, a um, series of parties called Lecken. About uh, six years ago, I believe this summer is our sixth anniversary. Um, and um, yeah, I'm also... Um, I've, I've worked as a, as a teacher, a lecturer here in Berlin. I've done um, activism, notably um, I became sort of politicized um, around Occupy, uh, but I've also done um, urban mm. rights activism. Um, and I'm sometimes a DJ um, <laughs> more recently. <laughs> that's a more recent hat that I've been wearing. And uh, I'm also training, uh, studying psychology to eventually train as a psychotherapist at the moment. Mm. Well, there's a, a lot going on there. <laughs> there's been a lot of changes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should start with the, the Lekken story. Mm. Uh, so it's a, a club night or a, a club collective that is um, organizing parties for the last few years. And uh, yeah, how? What was the motivation for beginning this? Mm. Yeah, so um, about um, six, seven years when it all started, um, one of my best friends uh, and I, Mark Lohr, you also know him. We mm. um, we started going out together with our gay male friends to um, gay queer parties in Berlin. Um, you know, homopathic was the first kind of raving teat that we started sucking on. 
and uh, but also Burkhine increasingly there there weren't that many at uh, queer parties at that time and the scene was also by far not as diverse as it is today mm. and um, I think what drove us were two observations one um, we wanted we, we were total fans of this combination between dance floor and dark room techno exertion exuberance uh you know chemical acceleration but we felt that the kind of um intimate interactions the kind of sensuous sexual interactions that could be had at these parties were not including people like us particularly uh we wanted to see more femme bodies or femme include uh, inclusive sex so um, and also because there were dark rooms in berlin like fucking thousand back then that could not be accessed by um by women or feminine people in general. So we were wondering what will it take uh, or what needs to change in order to make um, this public sexuality more inclusive, more welcoming to um, to different kinds of subjectivities. Um, mm. So that's one thing that we where we wanted to see change uh, from, from also a very personal uh, standpoint. But we also thought that we could... Um, do well organizing parties because one thing that uh, we we love organizing we love uh, going inside a club and um, thinking about how people would use space and then repurposing spaces for maximum intimacy or maximum connection or maximum pleasure so I think one of the things that makes us strong and also that makes people return to Lekan and feel very good at Lekan is that we rarely take a space um, or an institution the way that we find it, but rather we have a very hands-on approach um, to every part of the party and we try to repurpose it according to the needs of our community as we try to um, listen to it and pay attention to, to it. Mm-hmm. Mm. You say uh, Lekan exists for six years now, were there moments that were big turning points in trying to uh, reach these aims that you were setting for yourself? Um, one big turning point that I can remember is, um, you know, we've been explicitly feminist from the beginning. And by that, I don't just mean uh, femme to the front, women to the front, but feminist in the sense of having a politics that is beyond a politics of inclusion and representation, but a politics where we try to constantly uh, trouble the status quo and um, educate ourselves further about um, what um, what are the stakes for you know uh, personal and collective liberation um, and maybe around the second the third year that we were doing the party we um, had to uh, become much more conscious of the fact that feminism at this point, at least the kind of radical feminism that we were interested in was a trans-inclusive feminism and that we had to uh, stretch our um, our vocabulary, our attention, our scope, our practices of hospitality and the connections that we were forging with people um, to include trans women, but also to include the entire spectrum of what now is known as Flinta people. Um, so female, trans, intersex, non-binary, and... Um, lesbian. Uh, lesbian and... Uh, yeah. And this was a like a, a process of stretching your own 
presumptions and expectations and uh, frame of reference? Um, yeah, it, it was a process of, of shifting attention yeah, or, or yeah. widening the scope of our attention. I don't think it, it required, um, you know, a lot of soul searching. Um, I think we were anyways already on board with this politics. Um, so, yeah, it was about slightly shifting the focus of, of our attention and making sure that we also forge um, relations and involve into our community the people that we wanted to see at our party. Um, yeah. Mm. And so through this process of um, specific specifying your politics and uh, who you want to include and who you want to um, actively invite and make space for on the dance floor and in the dark room, um, there was some sort of a community organizing around Lacan, which you also describe as a temporary uh, or temporary community. Mm -hmm. How is that? Um, how temporary it is and how much of a community is it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question because um, I would like to believe that it's not temporary. But... Um, yeah, your question also brings to mind another big turning moment, that, um, which was in the summer of 2020, when our um, collective member and good friend, um, Mariana Nobreviera, um, um, suicided herself. And in this moment, um, or around this moment, we... Um, it, it really highlighted the stakes of what it means to be in community. We we always had people come to Lekan and want to stay, at, sort of stay in connection with us and wanted mm. to return to Lekan. There was something that a lot of people resonated with. They found there is a certain kind of warmth or authenticity or kind of genuineness about the way that we were doing things. So in any ways, we saw ourselves as... Um, more than just the collective, which is uh, uh, currently a, a collective of nine people, Mariana still included. Um, but in this moment, we realized that this, and this was already pandemic days when this happened, yeah. um, that this is not just a um, Freizeitkultur, and it's not just a, a community for the good times, but that if we call ourselves in community, uh, um, we need to be there for each other in good times and in bad times. Um, and we need to listen to each other and check in and ask questions. And um, around Mariana's wake, we then created, anyways, we had a, a sort of internal messaging board on Facebook, and then we migrated it to a more instant uh, platform like Telegram. And um, that then set uh, this tragic event set the roots for um, a very present community that now um, includes. Um, I mean, it, it is just a, a circle of friends and friends that have been friends uh, and who see themselves as part uh, as being in community together for several years. Some mm. of us have known uh, each other for ten years in that group. Others for maybe two or three years, but it's not it's not a casual. Um, 
you know, they, these are not casual relations. These are already people who have been um, in um, closer connection for, for some time and who also um, see themselves as wanting to travel together and be in solidarity with each other for an indefinite time to come. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, you could also, uh, there's this kind of cliche, I don't I, this romantic saying that if you know that you're in love because uh, when you cannot imagine the end of something. Um, so, um, yeah, we're very much conducting our relations in this group, which has only become more accountable to each other um, without a kind of expiration date. Um, mm. Although all of us have come together and have gotten to know each other through nightlife. Um, you know, on the one hand, we don't believe this will end for us at any point. Nobody is thinking, oh, I'm just doing this because I'm in my 20s and I'm going to stop raving when I'm 30. Or, um, you know, I'm just living in Berlin now because I'm young, but eventually I'm going to move back to wherever I'm from and I'm still going to start a family. So a lot of the people in the group are, um, anyways, the vast majority are queer migrants who have moved to Berlin because they have to be in Berlin because there's no other comparable queer scene where they could go to. Um, a lot of the vast majority will not have children. The vast majority will not um, will not get married. Um, um, they are in um, non-monogamous or polyamorous uh, kind of intimate context. So um, living in this community, which is at this point a sort of queer kinship making, is very important because this is kind of... Um, it's almost like a union, uh, like a labor union or a cultural union. It's the structure that keeps you when, um, let's say, uh, your biological family or the state cannot support you. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, one of the things that I've noticed in the time that I've lived in Berlin is the extent to which the city can be transient or rather that people can sort of arrive and then leave again and what you're talking about here is in a way a kind of a an attempt to i mean maybe not to find permanence but to sort of figure out ways for things to be able to be less transient um and that is something that i suppose well obviously it's it's difficult in a very practical way but it also kind of connects to these uh kind of well, yeah, the, the transformation of the city that we've seen over the last, well, yeah, over the last, let's say, few years um, that is creating a, a very different city to the, maybe the Berlin that exists in a lot of people's imaginations. Um, and, you know, this is also something that uh, has resulted in its own kind of uh, political uh actions and reactions uh, resulting from this uh, but it's also something that I know you were kind of uh, talking about this maybe slightly earlier than other people were talking about it and uh, I remember seeing a, a performance that you did that was kind of addressing some of these ideas but what ways does that kind of affect these sorts of um, queer kinships that you're that you were talking about mm. Yeah, I mean, this speaks to a very big issue, which is the commodification and the 
capitalization of our dear city. Um, and in the performance that you were mentioning, we were trying to also pay some homage to my friend uh, and uh, co-Lekan uh, co-conspirator Heather Purcell and I. We are trying to also um, shed some light uh, onto the history and pay homage to this social democratic um, history that um, we've inherited in Berlin and the reason why Berlin lags uh, behind in terms of um, neoliberal urbanization, lags, lags a couple of decades behind um, Paris, New York, London. And I'm only using this term lags behind because it's very clear that the political elite from all parties um, is trying to play catch up to this yeah. uh, process of gentrification. Um, but to, to understand that if, if you've come here to Berlin because one, you've enjoyed a slightly lower cost of living or because you enjoy less commodified uh, counterculture or just the general um, the general nature of public culture, the parks and this public swimming pools and, you know, all the quality of life that I'm sure startup bros are also moving here for. This is not happenstance. This is uh, an inheritance of uh, a tradition of a left city, the Berlin being mm -hmm. a socialist or left of center city. And by that, I mean more West Berlin than, than East Berlin during the Cold War. And um, having a very strong um, notion of public cu public culture and public goods, so the commons, uh, but also having a very strong uh, Antifa presence and a very anarchist presence, because it is these people that pushed for and and then maintained these um, non-commercial institutions, whether it was um, squads or libraries or commonly run kitas and so on, and in a you know. In a queer communist post-capitalist future, we would like to return to these places. We would like to reclaim these spaces to be able to govern ourselves uh, and to manage our um, our affairs of social reproduction, like education and food, and reclaim more and more of these spheres away from the state and capital. It's obviously very difficult, virtually impossible, um, with this economy. Um, and it translates to one of the, for instance, in this group that I was talking about, um, it's very funny that almost any sort of question problem that somebody poses can be resolved in uh, in a matter of minutes. You know, somebody is asking, well, um, how, um, you know, do you know a good uh, software, uh, a good interview transcribing software? And somebody will, you know, not only send the name, but also a cracked version. And, you know, like, I, I need some Ableton skills. And I'm like, oh, I can teach you. And it's kind of this real-time mutual aid uh, skill bank. Mm. But one thing that we cannot help each other, and we've also helped each other with jobs and, you know, all sorts of other more sophisticated things. But one thing we cannot help each other with is housing. And mm. it's very, very depressing to see my friends, so many of my friends still struggling to find housing, whether it is a room or, you know, your own place, you can forget about it. I mean, part of it, I think, can be solved by accepting to move outside of the ring, which a lot of us who have been here for many years cannot conceive of that because, you know, this, this is also a matter of adjustment. But this is not a solution. This is not a long-term solution. The fact that um, people who are um, trying to lead anti-capitalist lives and have more um, anti-capitalist uh, jobs are being pushed out of the city center and eventually out of out of the city at all. I believe that in 10 
years from now, people will probably, some people, especially in our, um, in our constituency, will um, consider um, maybe moving, uh, moving away if there's another pandemic or if there's another economic crisis. You'll have people like uh, young people in London, you know, moving out of the city because of the um, hardship of the, of the pandemic and gentrification. Mm. Um, and it not only changes your own survivability and the kind of jobs that you can, um, uh, that you need to then accept in order to, um, um, to make ends meet and your work-life balance. A lot of people moved here because of a very good work-life balance where you, you could see your friends any day of the week. You didn't have to kind of seclude your social life to Friday and Saturday evening. That's why we have 48-hour parties in Berlin because people <laughs> work less and um, they can still have a good, decent quality of life doing so. Um, so it changes people's relation to, to work and the kind of work that they need to. Uh, I mean, it's all, it's all intentional, right? The city has to recruit uh, new legions of rather like low middle class uh, digital workers, which are constantly being re-educated, whether it's data workers or web developers, you know, these new courses that um, the job center likes to very attractively propose to people. <laughs> Um, but it also changes the the nature, uh, the type of culture that can be produced. I think this, uh, particularly on the queer left, we have to understand that when we fight against gentrification, it's not just about fighting for individual survivability of uh, for housing, but we're also fighting to keep culture decommodified in the way that we enjoy doing it. Um, and yeah, the pandemic has shown that prices um, have risen everywhere. It mm. was kind of a shock doctrine um, in, in the club economy as well. Um, rent has gone up, fees have gone up, you know, entrance costs have gone up. It is still um, affordable, one m might say. Um, but um, yeah, if, if the trend continues, I believe that, um, yeah, I believe that all of these elements stacked together are changing the calculations also that individual artists are making in order to continue being artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, just to maybe kind of focus on perhaps what might be regarded as like the, the more positive uh, recent developments around these kinds of questions. Uh, the campaign last year around the Deutsche Wohnen und Co. and Eignen Volksentscheid uh, was something where it seemed, at least in some ways, that people who might be used to a kind of a, a politics that I suppose you could regard as being more in the realm of identity politics were suddenly starting to think about a far more straightforward kind of material politics, let's put it that way, mm -hmm. um, in a way where it wasn't just an abstract kind of process of you know reading some essays or something it was a real thing that you could go and do and it was not only a real thing that you could go and do but it was a thing that at least initially seemed successful and of course now there's efforts to sort of you know try to push it out of the way or figure out some route around it and like you know there's uh the the, the city elite doesn't want to have to think about this but it it was in a way a kind of a i don't know like a a bursting out of some kind of a hopefulness uh, and a, an indication that there's still a willingness to fight. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, what's going on now is absolutely heartbreaking. Our new mayor is a totally bankrupt uh, person. Um, I mean, I'm not an SPD supporter, but she manages to even give the SPD <laughs> a, bag, a bad name. Mm. Um, and uh, I think the larger implication of her um, intent to not honor the decision of the referendum is a mass depoliticization of the city because a lot of people became politicized through um, the hopefulness that this possibility uh, represented. And um, yeah, if, if this referendum is not going to be respected, it will make every further referendum more difficult. And case in point, um, the, the, the recent current ongoing campaign, um, I forget the exact name, but which is about enfranchising uh, migrants living in Berlin to give them also the right to vote in local Alle elections. Demokratie für alle. Demokratie yeah, für alle. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, also to allow uh, email signatures to be, sorry, to allow um, signatures for referendums to be collected online, which would make this work so much easier and would uh, just expand the democratic uh, option that the general population has to bring forward um, their own wishes um, and demands and um, I'm not sure if it passed the first round of, of signature collection. I think this was partly because of a certain exhaustion or attrition, the fact maybe th this uh, campaign was scheduled a little bit close to, too closely to, to uh, DVE, but I think uh, it also did not um, mobilize as many people because we're still very um, disenchanted from mm. what looks still like a loss after yeah, after a yeah, win, yeah. a yeah. win that became a loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this uh, brings me uh, back to to dance and clubbing <laughs> because, uh, yeah, like dance and clubbing, what one might think of as a purely freizeit activity, it also has its um, political... Um, aspects to it and I think that's also what Lacan also strongly uh, also tries to um, achieve or, or bring in and um, maybe this uh, connects to uh, an essay that you wrote called Dance Dance Revolution um, would you like to say more about that? Yeah, um, sure. It's it's a long arc. Um, uh, um, so I guess one, uh, maybe to start with the um, practical details. Last uh, year, Pedro Marum, um, one of my um, other comrades, um, spiritual and emotional and political comrades, and I were um, invited by Kasia Volinska to write a piece in a collected. Um, in a, a volume of essays uh, called Danceolytics, which is still available, um, not still, which is available online, the whole book. Um, it's a free book. I'm not sure if it still exists in print, but um, you can um, probably find uh, the link to the book. And uh, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll dig that in and, and okay. put it in. <laughs> uh, great. Um, and I, so we were writing this piece at the end of 2021. I get so confused with the years in the pandemic. <laughs> um, and we, we felt 2021 was a very political a year in, um, 
in the queer scene here in Berlin and the queer nightlife scene, um, there were a few um, momentous events uh, that happened. On the one hand, there was a slight shift in consciousness and a shift in the consensus around the Israel-Palestine issue, Germany being very uh, pro-Palestine in a very rigid ideological way. Um, and a, um, a lot of the nightlife scene, particularly the... Sorry, just to jump in, did you mean pro-Israel? You just said pro-Palestine. I said pro-Palestine? No, yeah. I meant pro-Israel. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, and uh, particularly some of the venues as well, um, you know, the anti-Deutsch phenomenon um, left except for Palestine. And uh, one big queer crew buttons, uh, they dropped out of about blank uh, around the latest, um, um, uh, the latest manifestation of war in Palestine. Uh, after Room for Resistance, another queer feminist uh, crew had dropped out or rather been kicked out of about blank two years before. So now Buttons was following suit and uh, it was uh, they were ending a 10-year-long relationship, which was quite a you know, momentous, controversial event that was closely watched by a lot of people. And at the same time, um, people in our circles wrote a letter, an open letter that uh, called uh, Nightlife Workers against, against Every Apartheid, which invited nightlife workers of all stripes to come out and express by signing the letter their solidarity with Palestine in this ongoing conflict to just create visibility and awareness and sympathy for the ongoing struggle of Palestinian people for the last um, 70, 70, 80, 80 years. Um, so in 2021, um, these events then culminated in an alternative pride parade that was, um, as was called Inter Internationalistische Pride happening as an alternative to the commercial mainstream CSD. Uh, it's based in Icon, whereas the other one is uh, in, in Mitte, uh, organized by a collective called Quark um, Queers Against um, Imperialism and Racism, I want to say, or Colonialism and, and Racism. I'm not very good with acronyms. <laughs> but it's, it's basically a queer POC collective that um, organized this. Um, so we felt there's a lot of mobilization around this issue uh, in our, for the first time, the consensus, at least on the migrant queer left in Berlin, was shifting. Um, maybe we all shared a pro-Palestine kind of understanding, uh, reading of the conflict, but the letter and button stepping out of about blank allowed us to be public about it, whereas before people would have feared personal retribution um, over it, which is what happened to, to Room for Resistance. And now this uh, letter um, allowed us to come out um, as, a, as a united front. And the hope was that we would also be able to have a more substantive conversation with um, nightlife anti-Deutsch members and maybe also get about blank to, uh, you know, the point was not just to leave about blank, I think, to leave them high and dry, but to move the conversation forward and to finally the nth expression of war in Palestine uh, maybe would compel Germans to also come out um, 
and and um, do what leftists everywhere else are doing and actually fall. Um, um, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, the, this doesn't happen. But it was still a significant um, moment for for some of us. Um, and on the other uh, hand, there was Deutsche Wohnen and Eignen, where several of us became politicized. So then, in this in this essay, we kind of narrate the events of twenty twenty one, and obviously, the, the pandemic, anyways, introduced a certain kind of politicization of everyday life, where a lot of people mm. confronted with the vulnerability and the. Um, kind of finite nature of of life and the fragility of our health were um starting to reappreciate uh, the significance of solidarity and institutions of of solidarity and care um and with the closures of clubs um <laughs> the nightlife left was also much more available and happy to be out on the streets because um, it was an opportunity to be together on mass okay, and yeah. it was somewhere to go <laughs> it was somewhere to go and somewhere to be together and somewhere to be loud together so the few demonstrations that we had in 2021 were very powerful and was also personally for me a very powerful moment to finally be marching with 50 friends whereas you know I, I've come out of a left kind of autonomous context uh, I've left that, that context when I started doing Lekan for a variety of you know, personal reasons, disenchantment with the German leftist activism. So it was nice to see us back on the streets, but now with my sort of new crew. Um, and in, in this paper, we um, try to put forward the point that um, raving is a particularly critical raving. So this queer feminist raving that Pedro and I are both, uh, Pedro runs a party called, a queer party called Mina in Lisbon. This kind of queer uh, critical raving that we're nurturing is a good training ground for politicizing young people because the rave is the one cultural form that grabs the attention of the biggest number of youths around the world. Of course, there is a lot of uh, cishet raving as well. But um, in general, club culture at the moment, which is having the, its biggest, um, it's, it's constantly numerically on the rise, it can work as a site of education and politicization, regardless whether it's queer or, or not. But in our case, we were focusing on also fleshing out, articulating what are some of the principles of the queer left, right? When you go to, to a queer party, oftentimes you will see a ban and a, um, um, a problematization of all the isms, right? We don't stand for any, um, uh, we don't stand for uh, sexism, for racism, for transphobia, for ableism. And you know, you could say that some of the things that are missing from the list are capitalism and fascism. But I think that if you actually add all the things that the queer left is opposed to, is uh, is a sort of um, queer anti-fascism, because all of the things that are being um, banned or criticized there are marks of uh, global um, uh, far right uh, politics and global far right culture and imaginary. Um, I don't think this is necessarily done in a very conscious way, but as you know, punk culture is on the way out or has been on the way out, and rave culture is uh, now having its big moment. Um, you know, punk culture was super instrumental in politicizing a lot of people into anti-capitalist and anti-fascist goals, and I, uh, I think raving could have the same potential if it's done with a more intent political goal. Mm. There's a uh... 
I hope this isn't too too uh, too cute a, thing, a way to put this, but uh, what you've talked about is uh, involves a lot of repatternings, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I suppose uh, I'm kind of curious if there has been sort of like a a time in your life that you think of as this sort of uh, moment of having been repatterned or of having been kind of you know had things totally turned inside out for yourself uh obviously part of our interest in kind of asking these kinds of questions is because with everybody having just gone through this crazy pandemic and being kind of now on to like the next round of craziness um there has been this sort of global repatterning if we want to put it in those terms uh but it has been felt by people in this very personal way uh but I was curious if there was anything kind of maybe further back in your past or anything like that that you think of as this turning inside out. Mm. And I'm not a big fan of this turning inside out. Moment. <laughs> I prefer <laughs> continuity and progression to my life. I prefer things being integrated as opposed to, I mean, if there's going to Th- be mass... They're often dis- really bad times. Yeah. <laughs> if there's going to be mass disruption, then it better be political and yeah, not just yeah. personal. <laughs> and they, they better lead to better uh, reconfigurations or better patterns afterwards. But maybe the closest that I can relate to this is um, Occupy. Mm. Um, so that was 2008. Uh, and obviously it had long... Um, it cast a long shadow afterwards. So I think we were involved in uh, Occupy Activism up until 2012 here in Berlin. Um, and 2008 was the year that I graduated, uh, that I finished my PhD in political science. And um, to my sadness, I didn't graduate as a very political person. I, you know, I, I went to grad school in this generation where we read Foucault, Derrida, but no Marx, and nobody could teach Marx because they had already they hadn't hired or they had, uh, you know, all the Marxist teachers were of an old generation and you know n- not um, really um, doing a contemporary form of of Marxism. So this was not something that um, in um, left politics was not something that I was exposed to. I was just exposed to post-structuralism and and post-colonial theory, but these are um, more critical philosophical um, um, lenses, I would say. Um, So uh, I found myself in Berlin um, with a new set of friends and a new set of global questions, and I got politicized very, very fast and Mm. um, started joining... um, you know, sit-ins and um, uh, kind of occupations. We tried to do a small occupation in front of the uh, uh, Bundestag. Um, And then just uh, Occupy here was also very much a migrant movement that was happening in English because the Germans were already having um, a a very established culture of anti-capitalist critique in their own organizations. So they were probably, I don't know what was happening in those organizations, but because they were more historically anchored and well-read, they were able to understand that the way in which Occupy was posing the, 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 the antagonism in this David and Goliath way of like, we're going to occupy a square and this is going to turn financial capitalism inside out. This was... Um, not just fanciful, but it was based on um, a lack of understanding of political strategy and a lack of, uh, it was a poor analysis of how power works. 
Um, you know, in a way, the movement, we learned a lot about organizing itself, but uh, the way in which the antagonism was placed um, and the fact that it was not mediated through institutions, but it was mediated through individuals versus, you know, the 1% or the ver individuals versus the center of power. And it was hinging on constantly politicizing and mobilizing more individuals to join occupations. I think it was uh, doomed from from the start, although some things like debt relief um, have made uh, an impact and have stayed as part of the agenda, at least in the U.S., uh, in, in a yeah, significant way. Um, but yeah, for me, it was a very, very significant moment. I um, started um, reading Marx. I started going to Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, and they offer a yearly uh, free course on reading Marx together. It takes 12 weeks. You're doing it very meticulously, where you, all you're doing is a close reading of the text, no analysis, no interpretation, just trying to stick with capital volume one because it's dense and it's brilliant. Um and um, yeah, attending lots of book clubs, reading a lot on my own, going to meetings and demos. And eventually the, the Occupy movement was co-opted and it turned into a spectacle by the art world where um, Shmievsky, I forget his first name, was invited around the same time to do a Biennale at Cave. And it was around that time. So the whole uh, Biennale was around political art. But instead of taking um, in um established figures in the contemporary art world uh, doing political art. He went to basically outside artists who were doing political art, you know, people from Tacheles or Christiania or Occupy. That, that, that. Um, and in that process, he, he presented outside political art to um, the art art elite and made a mockery of, you know, it's basically the highbrow looking at lowbrow art. Hmm. And um, it looked, um, yeah, infantile from even if the politics behind it, um, regardless of the, 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 the quality of the politics behind that work in terms of artistic uh, execution and conceptual sophistication, that work was banal, um, you know, for the place and the context and the audience that it was shown to. And on top of it, he, he gave us the big room in Cave to conduct our business there, our uh, assembleas. And um, yeah, then you had, um, it was a, basically a human zoo. And we didn't understand how the white cube works enough to say no to the invitation, to the very mm. generous invitation. And um, yeah, we learned a lot. And that was also the end. I mean, the movement would have ended before or uh, sooner or later anyways. But um yeah, what? Who, who could have guessed that the elite art world would be able to take something significant and turn it into bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't. We, we just took the invitation at face value. Yeah, All yeah, we yeah, saw yeah. was, hey, this is a rent-free uh, like, space, space here yeah, where yeah. we can meet and we don't have to be out in the cold. Little did we know that this was a total sham. Yeah. Um, but one thing that really struck me or stuck out for me about this time of going to the meetings and organizing mic checks, interruptions of different events. Um, um, and yeah, organizing political disruption and civil disobedience is that I remember this period as being high. I remember uh, when you're in the thick of it, in the thick of revolutionary organization, there's moments like uh, Occupy, there's moments like... Um, Corona to an extent as well and in the beginning when it was all new and we were still catching our bearings but 
big political shifts and crises, they open up. Uh, there is a beautiful article by uh, a former colleague of mine, uh, Max Haven, called Are Your Children Old Enough to Learn About 68? And he talks about how revolutionary moments, they crack open what is usually linear time, which is the, sta the time of status quo. And then all of a sudden you have constituent time, time in which we can... Um, for a moment, at least reconfigure the pieces of the puzzle and participate in actually making history. And that moment, it lasted for maybe six months and I was literally high and I was not using anything. And it was a feeling that being together with with people and making politics is a feeling that I was only able to then find again in the rave, either because you are high or because you're organizing something with people that, you know, is beautiful, but also very temporary. Yeah, that... Solidarity can be one of the uh, most powerful drugs <laughs> yeah. that you can have. Totally, yeah. And collective efficacy, even if on a very small scale. Well, I think we talked about <laughs> a lot of different things and uh, it's, uh, it's actually very inspiring to, to hear about uh, all these uh, moments in life that brought change in different ways or are still bringing change. Um, yeah. Is there anything that you would like to say to close? Or N Nothing comes to mind. I've enjoyed this a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, maybe you can just, uh, I don't know, do you have like a, a website or something like this that you can let people know about that? If, if, if anyone's curious about learning more about the things that you're talking about, is there a direction you'd point them? Yeah, unfortunately, my website exists on Instagram these days in, <laughs> in the economy that I'm part of at the moment, nightlife. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, Wanda Games on Instagram and there you have the link tree that takes you to different things that yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm involved in. Cool. Well, we'll, we'll link that. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks. So that was our interview with Wanda Games. And uh, you can see all of the links to all of the things that we were talking about on the website. Which is repatterning.xyz. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and see you back for the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.